like we put her in timeout. She doesn't care. She just sits there. <laughs> it's like this is me time. Yeah, I'm good I with it. Smug, um, smug look on my face. All I need is like my little wrap. She doesn't, she doesn't care shades. about anything that you can't take stuff away from her like Liz does. She gives zero shits, my friend. Like zero. She's gonna end up on a commune. Oh my god. If we don't get her into like St. Andrews like soon, she's gonna end up on a commune, barefoot, dreadlocked hair, and then at that point she's dead to me. I'm not kidding. If the, any of your kids come over to my place with dreadlocks, they're out. They're dead. I know. You know this. You've I don't the want. Talk. I don't want dreadlocks. <laughs> dreadlocks are so gross. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome back to the show. Woo! A grand total of 30 seconds have passed yeah. between last week and this week, because we are banking episodes. Yes. As we do. As we do, because that's just what we have to do. Uh, the summer is going to be busy uh, for us, for various reasons. You're starting a new job, slash building a house, slash raising Selling a house. And Selling raising house. minions, yes. Um, I'm, yeah, I've got cats. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we do have exciting news, uh, and that's to let you know that Rabbit Holes Podcast is heading up the first ever Ottawa Podcast Festival. Woohoo! So, what? yeah, in uh, my constant effort of hustling to get our name and show out there, I looked around and there was no podcast festival, and I said, why not? And then realized you're a legit meeting planner. I am a faux meeting planner, and so why don't we just plan ourselves a little bit of a festival here and uh, highlight ourselves? So that's what we're doing with uh, Pop-Up Podcasting Ottawa, uh, JP over there. Um, So yeah, very excited. Looks like we're going to go end of August, uh, August 24th, Saturday. Uh, If you are in the Ottawa area, head over to our website for more information and... um, the Ottawa Podcasters Facebook page. We'll have details too. And we hope that we will see you there. Yes. Yay. Yay. Podcast festivals. Podcast festivals. So that's probably what my summer is going to go into at yes. this point. Because as much as I love you and I will help a little bit, I don't have any free time. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard for me to justify forcing you to like come in on this when my like primary commitment is feeding my cats. Like... <laughs> I have a lot going on this summer. You do. You've got a bit of a gong show. So you know what? Just show up on August 24th and it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, uh, like I said, if you're in the Ottawa area, be sure to check out our information. Uh, Ottawa at that time might be a little bit cooler. So it might be a nice vacation getaway uh, at the end of the summer. Come see the city. It's lovely. It might be warmer than it is right now. Good Lord. I don't know if summer's ever going to come. Probably not. We'll probably have like a week of it, but like usually by August, it's starting to like on the backslide too. So it's lovely. It's lovely here in August. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's it for housekeeping, if you will. Speaking of meeting planning, anything else? Any updates? No. Any new exciting? It's been 30 seconds. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Yes. I start my job the day after this comes out. Yeah. There it is. Now we can finally say it and be right. So as ho- probably some of you will be listening to this on your drive. Andy is also driving to yeah. a new job. 
Yeah, so give me some good vibes. Yeah. I am excited, but also a little nervous because this is the first time I've changed jobs in my professional career, even though I am almost 40. Yes, you've had a very lucky, stable. Yes, I've been 12 years at the same job. And before that, I only had two other jobs. Like, I don't, I haven't had a lot of jobs in my life. I grew up in a town that didn't have a ton of opportunities. So I had a few summer jobs. And then I had a long-term job in London that I worked in a plumbing company in their showroom and doing their new homes and then I worked a couple of little jobs here in Ottawa mm-hmm. and then started at our old employment yeah so well welcome to adulthood where I you know. have to change jobs a little bit more often than that I know <laughs> you'll do great they're very lucky to have you they're very excited too so that's yeah, nice good it's nice to feel wanted yeah it's a nice change isn't it <laughs> Remind me after we're done to tell you a funny story. Will do. (laughs) All right. So with that note, let's dive on into our stories. Uh, I went first last week. uh, So you get to go first this week. So uh, this is a few weeks old because it's been sitting in my um, reading list. Mm -hmm. But you may have heard about a Florida resident who died after being attacked by one of his cassowaries. No. (laughs) Oh, my God. How did you miss this? I don't know. So Marvin... H A J O S. H A. Hayos? 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 Uh, died after being attacked by one of his cassowaries, which, if you're not aware, is a giant flightless bird with sharp claws native to Australia and Southeast Asia. Oh boy. Classic Florida man. Again, poor life choices in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> so, this guy has a collection of over 100 other exotic animals that he keeps on his estate. All the animals, including the cassowaries, will be auctioned off as per his wishes. The auction has been billed as the dispersal of the animals, animal estate of Buddy. <laughs> but the animals that will likely get the most attention is the giant, hulking, flightless cassowary with dagger-like claws on each foot that killed him. I have two questions. Yes. Oh, I guess you answered one of them in that, are they selling the murderer? Yes. Question two. Before you launch into your story, can I guess what the possible rabbit holes that I'm envisioning are? Sure. Okay. Possibility one, Florida man redux. Like we're doing another episode. Yes, we are doing a little bit of Florida man. <laughs> Florida man and animals. <laughs> okay. That was my second sort of like guess. Like yeah. wacky pets slash animals that yeah. we should know better. Like Oh, please tell me there's a Siegfried and Roy joke in here somewhere. No, there isn't. Anyways, so I'll tell you more about this dude. So he fell between two cassowary pens on April 12th and was attacked through the fence by at least one of the birds. According, this is according to Jeff Taylor, a deputy chief uh, in the county's fire rescue. When rescue workers arrived, they found him grievously injured on the ground between the two pens and an angry bird bird stood in one of the pens. According to him, Mr. Taylor said that a couple of people from our crew had to dodge the birds themselves. The bird was obviously agitated and was trying to come at them through the fence, but they were quick enough to get themselves out of the way. I'd like to say that the gentleman who died was in his 70s. So, not Sad, as... but like a good long life. Yeah. But like, I can just see, like... As soon as you said the bird looked standing there angry, I was like, his internal monologue had to have been like, yeah, I killed him, and I'd kill him again if I had the chance. <laughs> it was a she. Oh, well, there you go. 
now I'm less angry. <laughs> he probably had it coming. He probably told her to smile more and she got fed up. <laughs> but I have this picture in my head of like every fire rescue TV show squad, like dodging. Right. <laughs> like Horatio yeah. from CSI dodging like yeah. angry cassowaries. Also, you said angry birds and I was just like, <laughs> angry birds. <laughs> So cassowaries are emu-like birds that can stand up to six and a half feet tall. They have an almost prehistoric appearance. Their bright blue faces are topped with horn-like ridges, and their bodies, which can weigh up to 130 pounds, are covered in dark feathers. Their two muscular legs each sport one dangerous claw that is really sharp and up to five inches long. That's like a knife. Yeah. Hold on. I'm Googling it. How do you spell it? Casu... C-A-S-S-O-W-A-R-I-E-S. Okay. Little fun fact about Elise. Uh, when I was eight or nine, uh, my mom took me to see Jurassic Park at the movie theater, and I left that theater black and blue because of all the jump moments, and I kept hitting myself on the arms of the chair because it terrified me. This haunted my dreams for years after that experience. This is a dinosaur, Andy. And I think I, yes, it is. It's very prehistoric. And I actually don't even have to steal a picture off of Google Images for this because I have pictures of cassowaries from when I was in Australia. And you survived. I'm so proud of you. Literally, this thing will spit venom in your face if you're Newman. Like, this isn't good. So, cassowaries have a violent reputation. (laughs) Yeah. With lots of uh, injuries attributed to the birds, but human fatalities appear to be rare. The last recorded cassowary on human killing (laughs) happened in April of 1926. (laughs) When a bird slit the throat of a 16-year-old boy in Australia who'd fallen while running away from it. He played knifey spoony and lost. (laughs) Well, I guess the story I read about this kid, because I thought it was a kid who was like tormenting the bird and then the bird got its revenge but they actually <laughs> the true story is they came across the bird when they were looking for their horse who ran away okay and their dog um went up to attack it and startle it and then the bird startled the dog back yeah and then the kid tried to get close to get their dog and then the bird like attacked them so okay. life lesson never pick a fight with a dinosaur just putting it out there <laughs> So, um, these birds are indigenous to Australia and Southeast Asia, not Florida. <laughs> the authorities in the Alpu, Alpaca County uh, uh, expressed almost universal surprise at both their presence in the county and their role in a local death. Don't you have to, like, register exotic animals like that? How are they surprised? <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, Bill Gothen who investigated the death for the medical examiner's office, said, I've been doing this for 18 years, and I've never had a thing like this. I've had them killed by alligators and snakes, but never a bird like that. I know ostriches and emus have their moments, but cassowaries are extremely, extremely dangerous birds. You don't want to fool around with them. They have no sense of humor. (laughs) There's a man who loves his job. (laughs) The running theory is that Mr. Hazel was checking on some eggs and the female was pissed that he was Mm. 
that he was messing with her eggs. Mama Bear came out of the cassowary yeah. cave that day. Yep. Uh, the bird was not put down after the attack, and it was never really clear why. But maybe it's because, you know, it's a wild animal doing what wild animals do when <laughs> someone's fucking with their eggs. Ha-ha! Damn it! <laughs> I doubled down! <laughs> I'm leaving that in, so don't even bother trying it again. They're just going to have to bleep you. <laughs> It'll be a delightful change of pace for them at Algonquin. <laughs> in Florida, cassowaries are considered class 2 wildlife that can pose a threat to humans... <laughs> But this dude did not need a permit as he employed a agricultural exemption for his possession of cassowaries for agricultural use. Apparently they can be bred for meat, eggs, and live animal sales. This sounds like what Trump is doing at Mar-a-Lago. He's got a pen out back with eight goats in it and allows him to claim up to $80,000 in farm subsidies a year. This guy had like a bunch of exotic pets. I guess he's probably using agricultural exemptions for all of them, maybe? But... I don't understand how, like, you wouldn't need a permit for breed. Like, they're still there. It's not like he's unless, keeping them as a pet, but they can still get out and, like, pose a threat to humans. And unless he's hosting, like, an annual cassowary barbecue once a year, like, we've got questions about the agricultural purposes behind this. I know. Uh, the organizer of the animal auction, Gulf Coast Livestock Option, said that it would be open to the public, but on Facebook they said that news media will be barred from the event <laughs> and risk the destruction of their equipment if they try to attend it. Anyone seen videotaping in any capacity will be deemed trespassing and will be escorted out by security, and your video equipment may or may not be confiscated until all video recordings are destroyed. <laughs> so they're like... They're not joking around. Which is weird, but maybe... maybe well, because they know that, like, the Florida man jokes are going to be nonstop, and as a follow-up, like, Metro News 1 is going to show up and want to record that. But also, like, it sort of makes me go, is there, like, animals that he has that you shouldn't be selling? Oh, like, you think there's, like, a brace of tigers out back? Yeah, that, like, like just happens to be over a hundred exotic animals. I see. I doubt cassowaries is the only one he has. It's probably not the most messed up kind he has either. Yeah, like the whole they said, island like of Dr. Moreau and, out back yeah, happening. Yeah, so maybe. It's, they say it's because his family asked them not to release any information to the news media, but that sounds like a little extreme. How do you get advertisements out to get people to come to your yeah. auction? It's, I guess, a niche community <laughs> of other animal smugglers. <laughs> so... Well, that is all messed up. I, as we said, I don't know how you don't need a permit. It's not like how you need a permit to have them as a pet, but not as a farm animal. Like, it's still the same risk to the public. Yes. It's not like you're going to have Cassowary Bob running around your house shitting in a litter pan. I would actually prefer to not have a permit on a pet situation than on an agricultural, because, like, as a pet, I would assume there's some sort of emotional connection between it and a human, and might temper that anger a little bit whereas it did did not work here well that's true (laughs) (laughs) maybe they just decided that they were done with the whole eight shows a week shtick that they had to do (laughs) not getting paid well enough for it no and also is the market for cassowary meat and eggs that big can you imagine the size of an omelet (laughs) 
from a cassowary <laughs> egg. Because I can imagine those are, they're big birds, so they're yeah. totally fairly large eggs. Well, I'm imagining ostrich size. And yeah, that's what I make do. a bunch of omelets out of one of those suckers. Yeah. Yeah. But no, if you said, hey, Elise, let's go out for dinner. Uh, this restaurant has just brought in cassowary meat. I would say that's delightful. I will uh, mock you from home. <laughs> I'm not going out to eat cassowary. Who was it? Uh, what podcast was I listening to? Oh, it was the David Tennant does a podcast, and he had um, Michael Sheen on. Okay. It's like, you know, they do, doing good omens together. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about, like, how he's actually, Michael is really good friends with Neil. Gaiman. Gaiman. Yeah. And he was saying, like, one of the first times they went out for dinner, Neil brought him to this, like, kind of hole-in-the-wall restaurant. And he was like, oh, chef's choice. So they were bringing out, like, all these dishes, and they were eating, and it was really good. And then all of a sudden, the feds moved in and (laughs) shut them down. And, like, the chef was crying, apologizing. So, and they were in, it was Oscar season or something. Um, This was a number of years ago. And so, like... Michael's like, I, they what had to know, <laughs> what did we just eat? Or like, what is going on? And it turned out this restaurant was eating in danger, or sell, serving endangered seafood. So Aww. they had actually eaten like dolphin oh. and sea turtle. They just didn't, because they didn't know what they were eating. The well, chef yeah. was just bringing out plates and plates of stuff. And it turned out they had eaten all of this like illegal endangered oh, fish. Your karma's or, never coming back from that. Yeah. Whether you knew it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Mother Nature's got your name on a list. (laughs) Forever unclean. (laughs) So the whole permit situation is kind of weird. And if you're thinking of, what are the laws in Canada? Hmm. Well, my limited research, I found (laughs) this. Um, That the current situation for exotic animals in Canada is far from perfect. Federally, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species is the only body that oversees exotic animals, but they only deal with endangered species. According to the Canadian Constitution Act of 1867, animals are considered property and jurisdiction over exotic animal ownership is given to the provinces. Hmm. Okay, so that's not helpful. Since we live in Ontario, what are the laws here? Well, (laughs) Ontario is the only province currently lacking any form of provincial legislation regarding exotic animals. Oh, good. In 2003, the Ontario Municipal Act gave municipalities the power to enact exotic animal bylaws, but they are not standardized, and they vary between municipalities. So just passing the buck, one level of government to the next. Yep. Shit goes downhill, right? Yeah. Many municipalities have bylaws to control exotic animal ownership, but each defines exotic as differently. I did not check to see what Ottawa has on the books because I'm lazy and (laughs) wanted to see what other crazy Florida animal stories I could find. True. I don't think, though, it would be hard to define exotic. If it was not originally here, it is exotic. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, the internet did not disappoint. Uh, It never does. So here are some brief descriptions of a few Florida man plus animal stories. Oh, boy. (laughs) So the title, the headline for this one is Florida man impersonates FBI agent, harasses homeowner, leaves live catfish on driveway, flees on bicycle. of events that had to go into that afternoon for that guy makes me want like a biopic on him (laughs) a florida man was arrested after impersonating so this is the description Mm -hmm. 
impersonating an FBI agent, questioning a homeowner, and leaving multiple live catfish on her lawn before escaping on a bicycle. The only thing illegal in that sentence, though, is the impersonating of a law officer, I'm sure. A 42-year-old, Christina Dirdley, uh, faces charges of open container in a public area and impersonating a law uh, enforcement officer. Oh, okay. The open container bit uh, makes a lot of sense. (laughs) The victim says the... Florida man drove a bicycle with a flashing red and blue lights <laughs> onto her front yard. He then introduced himself as an FBI agent, then ordered the woman to present him with identification to prove that she lived here legally. When the victim told him to leave her property, he refused. The victim then told her husband to call authorities. The Florida man then took off on his bicycle, but before leaving, he dropped multiple live catfish on the driveway for unknown reasons. <laughs> Well, he had to lighten the load for the getaway. Also, catfish get really big. So what size catfish are we they talking about They were fairly large, but... Yeah. <laughs> so the police stopped him as he escaped because because uh, he matched the description of the culprit because... He was on a bike with a cherry light on it. <laughs> and according to deputies, <laughs> not shocked, fishy. he appeared extremely intoxicated <laughs> and was wearing an FBI hat and dark shirt. <laughs> This would only be peak Florida if the FBI was, like, female booby inspector. (laughs) If that was what was on the hat. (laughs) Florida woman pulls alligator out of pants during a traffic stop is the title of the next article. Brave. Very brave. But no man is doing that. But yes. This is why it's a Florida woman. Woman. Yeah. Not to be outdone by Florida man. Florida woman pulls a foot-long alligator out of her pants during a traffic stop on Monday. (laughs) When deputies pulled over the woman, who was observed flying past a stop sign in a blue Chevy pickup, she pulled the baby gator out of her pants. Her yoga pants. (laughs) The Florida woman, identified as 25-year-old Ariella Michelle something-something, also had 41 turtles in her possession in a backpack. I was going to say, like, in her bra? Like, where was she packing them? Uh, But a foot law, like a foot, it's a baby. Yes. But if you have a baby in your Lululemons, you uh, should definitely obey all traffic laws. First rule of breaking the law is always obey all traffic laws. Yes. (laughs) The next title is Florida Man Gets Beat Up by the Easter Bunny. Oh, boy. (laughs) So it's not animal specifically (laughs) read. But a Florida man received a beat down from the Easter Bunny and the whole thing was caught on video. Yes. It started when the man bumped into a woman and the and words were exchanged. The bunny hopped into action and proceeded to demonstrate his fists of fury. <laughs> I'm just reading directly from the article right now. A promoter that goes by WorkFTH on Instagram captured the fuzzy brawl on video. The fight was eventually broken up by Orlando police and a bystander. Apparently, the Easter Bunny spends a lot of time in the off-season training for moments just like these. Oh, boy. I bet you that bunny has seen mall rats way too many times. (laughs) And really wanted to be ready. Answer for your crimes, Kevin Smith. (laughs) Uh, So this one's a really short one, but the title, the, the headline is Florida man driving car full of stolen mail crashes into a trailer full of alpacas. Oh, no. <laughs> a Florida man invading Georgia police before dawn on Monday, whenever this article is written, crashed into a trailer carrying alpacas 
at the Florida Agricultural Inspection Station. Oh, you said trailer. I put two and two together with Florida and figured that it was their trailer home. <laughs> it was like, wow, those are some high living alpacas. <laughs> Transport trailer. Got it. On board now. Jeeves. <laughs> I think this man has just broken into our trailer. Kindly grab the Funyuns and join me in the bedroom. <laughs> so the last one, which I think, let me double check, I think this is the last one, is um, the headline reads, Florida man threatens to destroy everyone with his army of turtles. <laughs> you like yell sick at him and like point in the direction? <laughs> or oh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There is a Teenage possible Mutant threat. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Heroes in a half shell. Turtle power. And the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like that is out now, they're a little bit more ripped. Like their arms are, they're not oh, you like. you mean the Michael Bay? No, no. I mean like the actual new cartoon that's oh, there's out a cartoon. on. Yeah, there's a cartoon out on. Like, but like I don't remember, I remember them being a little bit more like turtle size yeah. they're and a little less round and they're like much more they've got like really defined and cut arms it's see but very... that's like the michael bay foam turtles that look like they're all like shooting up roids between takes well these are like he-man uh <laughs> turtles i find it very strange so anyway <laughs> so a florida man was arrested at a starbucks after yelling obscenities calling himself a saint and threatening to destroy everyone Aww. with his turtle army. There feels like there's some mental illness happening right here. Not when authorities call. arrived, the, for, the Florida man, a 61-year-old Thomas Devaney Lane, called 911 and told the operator, I need to leave now or you will all be sorry you expletive with the saint. <laughs> a police affidavit states... So that's 61 years old. I guess it takes a while to build up an army of turtles. Yes. They're slow moving. There's <laughs> also one about a man calling 911 because he found a iguana swimming in his toilet. Okay. No joke. I live in terror. Still do. Ever since I was like eight or nine of going to the bathroom in the middle of night and finding a snake in my toilet. That is true. I, I am in my 30s. We all have. I still turn on the light in the bathroom specifically for that reason. I hate it. I hate it so much. And not so you won't tread on one of your cats? No, they're they're fast moving. They've learned the lesson over time. It's the snake. It's the snake in the toilet that I cannot move past. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> so that is my story. Uh, it's a leak. Yeah. Yay. I don't know. You Florida. said a word there that I, know. Like I was going <laughs> to go somewhere, and I was just like, I'm going to not roll over her. <laughs> it just trickled back. <laughs> into the Rolodex that is my brain. But yes, no, uh, that was pretty fun. And I had that sort of cassowary story. And I'm like, okay, this will be a really great like, Florida <laughs> jumping man off. jumping <laughs> off point for Florida man and um, animals. And it did not disappoint it. It did not. Lord love Florida. What would we ever do without them? Well, my story this week also comes from a news story that came out a couple of weeks ago uh, that both you and Allie tagged me on and were chuckling about. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, the story came out that Switzerland was doing away with their stockpile of coffee. They had a national strategic reserve of coffee. 
Wasn't it? You didn't? No, I didn't. I was oh. like, I don't recognize this story. Then it was just Allie. Allie hit me up and she's like, oh, these silly Swedes. They've, not Swedes, the silly Swiss. They have a stockpile of coffee. Aren't they such silly, silly Europeans? And my response was, we have a strategic reserve of maple syrup. I don't think we can point fingers in this competition. Like, we are equally as silly if we care to be honest with ourselves. Yes, we have our national maple syrup reserve. Reserve. Yes. Uh, So that's... let's not forget the $300,000 maple syrup heist. Slow your roll. This is the story that I am telling this week. Oh, sorry. all about funny national strategic reserves. (laughs) (laughs) So what is a strategic reserve? For those who aren't sure from Wikipedia, the definition is as follows. A strategic reserve is the reserve of a commodity or item that is held back from the normal use of the public by governments, organizations, or businesses in pursuance of a particular strategy or to cope with unexpected events. It can be financial in nature, such as certain fundings or capital reserve of a large corporation. It can be a commodity, such as uh, food or gas for security uh, strategic reasons, or it can be of specific machinery. For example, Russia has a railroad car strategic reserve that has survived since the Cold War, because at one point they only had 12 of them, and if you haven't noticed, Russia's very large, and so you need more than 12 rail cars for national security reasons. So that's what it is. Strategic reserves can be financial, commodity, or machinery-based. Probably the most famous kind of reserves, though, are for oil and gas. So let's take a look at the world's largest. I was going to say gold, but anyway. Yes, but thank you for ruining them. No, <laughs> I was yes. thinking Die Hard 2. Oh, I went to or Gold Finger. Gold Finger. But outside of the realm of action movies, uh, in the real world, probably the most famous strategic national reserve is the one of oil and gas that the States holds on to. Uh, so the U.S. Strategic Prozolium, Prozolium <clears throat> coming to stars this fall. Uh, and Isles. Prozolium and Isles. Uh, so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a stockpile of crude owned by the U.S. government. Uh, it provides a backup supply of crude oil if the commercial oil supply is ever, ever disrupted. And it was created following the 1973-1974 oil embargo out of the OPEC nations. Uh, So in December 1975, President Ford passed the bill that allowed for the creation of the reserve in order to ensure that gas prices would never skyrocket again and that a supply would always be on hand. So the law that created it mandated that 1 million barrels be held in reserve, which was the largest emergency supply in the world at the time. It has since grown, and by 2001, the reserve numbered 700 million barrels. Holy crap. So 700 times increase in the size of the reserve, which makes sense when you think of all the different uses and how industries grow. The crude oil is stored in underground salt caverns in a government complex along the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And salt formations are the cheapest, most environmentally safe way to store crude oil. So it's not even in barrels, it's just in giant salt caves, like naturally formed salt caves down there. But also, like if that corridor of the Mississippi is just nothing but chemical plants and oil yeah. refineries. Yeah. Like, as far as the eye can see. Like, especially if you go down there in the summer. You used to, and I don't know if you do as much. My sister lives outside yeah. of Houston now. But, like, you'd always 
see on the morning air advisory, uh. everybody stay inside because it's just this haze of chemical Ugh. and uh, off gas from like all of the oil refineries and the chemical plants because it is literally just hundreds and hundreds right. of refineries and chemical plants. Ugh. So don't move there. And maybe your sister should. <laughs> she lives on the other side of Houston. Good. <laughs> Uh, so the first time that the reserve, the U.S. Reserve, was tapped was in 1991, and that was under the order of Bush 1 because Gulf War. <laughs> like, the oil supply got cut off, so they went into their reserves. Other times that the reserves were used uh, were to drive down the cost of natural petroleum gas for consumers in response to national disasters like Hurricane Katrina, or to raise funds to pay down the national debt which I found interesting. It's a massive asset that they were sitting on. So when they decided that the debt was getting too out of control, they sold off a portion of it in order to raise those funds. And there was also a release of some of the hold back for quote modernization purposes, which I didn't get a lot of details on, but I assume it's just the need to hold back so much was no longer required in order to meet the supply for their algorithms. Or they might have just been like, ah, this shit's getting kind of old. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Like cycling some new in. True. True, true, true. Between 2006 and 2008, deposits to the reserves were halted in hopes of driving down gas prices. Uh, And that's just a simple question of demand. If the reserve was creating a shortage of the market and driving up prices, you release some of it back into the market and it drives the cost down. So, uh, but I mean, that's really boring. Like oil, gas, who cares? So let's look at the fun types of reserves that are out there. And this is where we come to Canada. (laughs) Canada does not hold a national reserve of maple syrup. It holds the global reserve of maple (laughs) syrup. Yes. So sure, it sounds delightfully Canadian and weird, but keep in mind that Quebec alone is responsible for 71% of the world's maple syrup production. It's a lot. In 2016, one barrel of grade A maple syrup was worth $1,650 US, which made it 10 times more expensive than crude oil. That's, it's worth a lot. Well, it lot. makes sense. If you've never made maple syrup, it is. Shut up, I get to it. Sorry. I said Andy, like you do. <laughs> I <can> just <laughs> ruined it. I'm sorry, would you like to tell my story this week? <laughs> I'm just shitting all over this episode now, aren't I? Oh, it's literally the next point. As anyone who has been to a sugar shack knows, and as you know because you guys make the stuff, <laughs> it's a finicky process. It is. Weather conditions have to be just right to encourage the maple sap to flow in such a way to harvest enough of it that allows you to boil away enough of it to end up with the syrup. So you need cold nights and warm days. Yes, you and do. it's difficult. Climate change is actually becoming a real worry for the maple syrup industry in Canada because those cold nights, warm days just aren't coming with enough frequency. So the sugar seasons are getting shorter. They're becoming less predictable, less trustworthy. So it's an issue. To respond to the market and to create the market, really, in 2000, the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers set up the Global Reserve to ensure a steady supply to the market. They advertise the product internationally and are trying to convince the world that maple syrup is better for you than refined sugar. Maybe. But as any nutritionist will tell you, sugar is sugar, and regardless of the source, it has the same glycemic impact on your body. So that's why they're selling they're making that sale outside of canada because canadians know you're gonna get the same diabetes test (laughs) regardless of where that sugar comes from but something like i don't know i know molasses has some iron in it so sometimes if you have a real bad 
iron issue that sometimes that's adding like a little bit of molasses. Yeah. So that's but the amounts that you have to take in of molasses to offset an iron deficiency, as I am iron deficient, is enough to put you into a diabetic coma. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's something that helps. Yes. And it's like a, come from a people who eat molasses oh, on things? Yes. Like French Canadian as well. Molasses on biscuits was the treat on a Saturday afternoon. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Now we get into true crime podcast territory again. Because as you alluded to, in 2012, there was a heist at the reserve. And then I put in brackets, pause for dramatic gasp. So. (gasps) (laughs) Very oceans. Yes. Media coverage loved the story and the jokes were flowing. uh, Especially about sticky fingers. (laughs) So here's what happened. During a routine inventory check in mid-August 2012, it was discovered that about... 10 million pounds of maple syrup had been lifted from the warehouse that the Federation of Quebec maple syrup producers had set up as part of their reserve. 10 million pounds of the stuff disappeared. Street value, approximately $30 million. This was not small biscuits. Though I said 300,000, but I was wrong. 30 million. The warehouse it was taken from was actually temporary um, storage, and the inventory was being taken as part of the movement to the permanent fa- uh, facility. And if any heist movie has taught us anything, it's that shit is a lot harder to steal from its permanent location, so you always get it when it's in transit. Yes. So You boost it in transit, exactly. i.e. Italian job. Yes, exactly. I did literally picture minis driving off like one barrel at a time <laughs> while I was typing up the story. <laughs> just that scene of them like in convoy going through the city it's just like non-stop convoy (laughs) or them going through like the aqueducts in la that's what i mean yeah Yeah. Uh, while the loss wasn't predicted to influence the global syrup economy it was expected that it would allow cartels who i'm assuming would be on a real sugar high to undercut legitimate producers so there was sorry cartels of maple syrup that was the term used in the news article that i found about it uh as the investigation developed (laughs) that's a whole different season of narcos (laughs) exactly narcos north uh as the investigation developed the police figured it was actually a long-term theft that had started the year before (laughs) so this is a year-long running heist that had happened um all told though once the uh, federation had gone in and had uh, weighed all the barrels they figured out that in fact it was much less than the original reports and the actual value of the stolen goods turned out to only be about 18 million dollars oh. <laughs> it's it's still not anything to no turn your nose that. up at but like if you've ever bought maple syrup in the airport on your way to visit your family i think about five bottles covers that yeah they could reclaim their yeah It also turned out that the warehouse it was stolen from was a temporary rented facility. And when the Federation signed the lease, they knew it had no alarms and no cameras in place, but they figured who would steal maple syrup? So they did a risk reward analysis and decided it wasn't really worth the risk or the the need to spend any. I'm making much the same face as I made Michael Kent. Princess Michael Kent, yes. So... This wasn't a small operation. It involved an elaborate network of truck drivers, warehouse employees, and industry insiders who knew how to move the goods, 
most of which were sold outside of Quebec and only a quarter of it was ever recovered. So part of the investigation, one factory, one warehouse employee was saying that he found some water on a on the ground around a bunch of barrels and the warehouse manager offered him $1,000 to just look the other way and not mention it. So we weren't talking Italian job level of complexity here. <laughs> like, someone siphoning off a little that's what it sounds small like. amount at a time. Well, the Federation was shocked to discover the theft in 2011 or 2012. Remember that it had been going on for a year. Had they asked anyone in the neighborhood, they would have realized that no one else was surprised because locals reported heavy truck traffic being common between Saturdays at midnight and Sunday mornings. Heavy truck traffic. <laughs> going to and from a facility that has so not an oceans or Italian no. job. Like if they'd gone and asked Pierre, Pierre would have told them what was going down months earlier. This is much more of a like it's three like, Stooges. Yes, yes, it, yeah. It's if like the Stooges were on Danny Ocean's team. Mm-hmm. In the end, twenty-six people were arrested. Some pled guilty. Others had charges dropped, and still more claim their innocence. And so ends the tale of the heist that struck terror into the maple-loving hearts of Canadians everywhere. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we took the, the brunt of a lot of jokes that week. I'm not going to lie. The world's laughed at us, and we kind of deserved it. <laughs> a year-long heist, and you couldn't figure out a massive part of your quantity was gone. I mean, oh, not, not great for us. Uh, Canadians aren't the only one with a weird food-based strategic reserve, though. Did you know that between 1949 and 2015 that the U.S. kept a strategic reserve of raisins? <laughs> Oddly enough, though, this reserve wasn't about shoring up supplies for situations where there was a high market demand but no supply. Rather, it was the exact opposite. Raisins are, I think we can all agree, a great snack, right? They taste like shit, but they're good for you. They give you a huge energy energy supply, and they're easy to pack, very transportable, and can survive fluctuating temperatures and climates. So during World War II, both the government and private civilians were buying up large quantities of raisins and sending them over to the soldiers in Europe. And this created a huge market for raisins in the States. After the war, however, the production side of the market wasn't quick enough to rebound from the drop in demand, and producers kept flooding the market with their product, driving the prices down and crippling some of the farmers involved. In order to save American farmers and the Uh, from this economic collapse, the U.S. government allowed the USDA to take a varying percentage of the American raisin farmers' production, as much as 50% sometimes, uh, to create an artificial shortage in the market, thereby driving up the price of the raisins that they were allowing into the market. The reserve was held in California and was eventually used in school lunches, to feed livestock, and then it was eventually sold to other countries as well. And suddenly, the California Raisin Campaign makes a lot more sense. I was just going to say. Yes. Like, obviously, California at the time was the only place in the States that was growing raisin or grapes to start off with for the wine. But, like, they were also sitting on a massive pile of unsellable, quote-unquote, stolen raisins that they just had nothing to do with other than turn into marketable action figures yeah (laughs) uh so the reserve was finally questioned in 2002 thanks to american hero marvin horn who decided he didn't actually want to lose any part of his crop and wanted to be able to sell it all 
So the government got wind of his plan and sent out a private detective to sit on the farm and surveil it and figure out how much he was producing and thereby selling. And then they sent him a bill for $680,000. They decided the amount, the value of what they would have confiscated from him was 680,000 because he didn't turn it over. They fined him that amount for that refusal. Yeah. So these farmers don't have a choice. The government just rolls in with a truck and says, we've assessed what you've grown this year. We've assessed what the market price would be if we flooded the market with that much. Load up our trucks up to 50% of your crop. It's ours now and we're not going to pay you for it. And then they just take off. So Marvin decided, duh, no, <laughs> I'm not playing this game anymore. Well, I guess the whole point is you still get, you're probably getting a, the same amount of money back, but you're only selling half the amount. That's, I assume, the idea, because like, the, uh, they're, they're creating the artificial price in the market. Yeah. But uh, so good old Marv uh, didn't want to pay the bill. He wants to be able to sell and keep his profits. Uh, so he did the only thing a red, white and blue American can do. He sued the government. <laughs> no, no, at least he didn't shoot the government. <laughs> True. That's <laughs> one of only two things then that he could have done. Uh, the case went through a bunch of courts on appeals and finally ended up at the U.S. Supreme Court twice. <laughs> the first time they rejected the case because they said they didn't have the jurisdiction. I don't know. The second time though, they actually held, heard the case in 2015. Uh, and that court found that the practice of the Raisin Reserve was unconstitutional. On what grounds you ask? Why? On the principles of the Fifth Amendment, which prohibits the seizure of personal property without compensation. It's really, it's, it's not like it's an obscure law. <laughs> it's like black and white, it's right there. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Uh, as a result of the finding, the government was going to start having to pay all farmers fair market price for any part of the crops that they were seized. And so one would assume that was the end of it, right? Uh, it was not. Uh, after the Supreme Court verdict, the USDA released the following statement, quote, due to a recent United States Supreme Court decision, the provisions allowing for the Raisin Strategic Reserve are currently suspended, being reviewed, and will be amended. <laughs> it's effing raisins. <laughs> Two Supreme Court cases, uh, about a decade's worth of lawsuits, and they're not letting it go. Who needs this? Who's asking for this reserve of raisins? Well, I was going to, like, my last comment on this reserve is if you notice the cost of your raisin brand go down in 2015, you now know why. Because raisins suddenly got a lot cheaper uh, because the market was flooded with the product. So, uh, boomers. Only old people eat raisins willingly. So. And children. Children love raisins. I said willingly. Oh, my dad had to force them down my throat. I, no, I love my kids used to like they come in waves. Apparently, I used to love them too as a kid. I don't oh, yeah. like them now. Um, and then my mom would have like a box of them in a cupboard that I open. So if I was hungry, I'd just go get myself a snack of raisins. Right. And I think I ate too many raisins, and now I can't stand a, like. Mm. I'm starting to come back around to them, but only on oatmeal. Like I'll put them on oatmeal because then they get all plump and it's like little. I'm old. This is my takeaway. I'm old. I should find my California raisin action figure that I oh. had as a kid. At least you're not going like, prunes are good. Not yet. <laughs> so you're not that old. <clears throat> Switching lanes here. Did you know that there is absolutely no chemical way of manufacturing helium? No. You cannot manufacture helium. It is generated by the slow radioactive decay that occurs in rocks. So if we were to extract helium from the air, it would cost 10,000 times more than the extraction process from rocks. So that's how we get it. We extract it from the rocks and it's a 
process and it's a whole thing. Uh, according to Nobel winning physicist Robert Richardson of Cornell University, it took the Earth 4.7 billion years to build up its helium supply and it's taken humans less than two centuries to threaten it. Once the current supply is gone, it's gone. There's no more helium. We can't make it. We can't pull it from the air. It's, it's a limited commodity. And that's that. But other than blowing up birthday balloons, what do we use helium for? Glad you asked, because I got the answer to that. See, I got <laughs> your story now. <laughs> so the element, which is the second lightest material in the universe, is not just used for kids' birthday parties. Literally put that in my notes. Uh, and to make your voice sound weird. Both two fun uses of it, not the only ones. It's crucial for the operation of MRIs. So when the magnets spin, <clears throat> they generate a lot of heat, and helium is the only thing that can, is safely able to cool it down. Uh, it's also used in the production of LCDs, which we're coming dependent on in a big bad way. Uh, we use it in fiber optics, in nuclear reactors, again, for its cooling properties. The Large Hadron Collider needs it to operate, and arc welding. Uh, and it's useful in all of these in all these um, situations because helium is non-flammable. So that's why you can expose it to the heat of a nuclear core and use it to cool down the nuclear core because it's not going to go up. You're probably thinking of the Hindenburg right now. Hydrogen. Hydrogen no, is highly flammable. No, I was thinking like then we need to figure out some other way to blow up children's balloons. Uh, well, talk to Party City because Party City decided to close a massive part of its uh, chains of stores, partly in due to the hydrogen or the helium shortage. They just announced it like a week or so ago. Oh. Yeah. Uh, in some situations, like in the situation with the MRI, helium can be reused and recycled. But if you pop a helium balloon, that helium's gone. Like that part of the supply that the earth built is forever lost. You can't reclaim it from the from the, the air. It's gone. Done. So what do I do with my helium balloons? Uh, you breathe it in and make your voice sound funny. <laughs> Nothing. There's Once you put it into a balloon, it's considered lost stock. Yeah. So in 1925, when blimps were all the rage, the US government decided to set up a helium reserve. It was a national security issue, and I will tell you why. Having seen how effectively the Germans used blimps in the First World War, the U.S. government envisioned a dirigible fleet of their own. And hydrogen is one of the floaty gases, helium is the other, and so they were going to put their money on the helium of it all. Uh, but the technology outstripped them, and so by the time the Second World War rolled around, airplanes had become the military's tool of the air. However, that didn't stop them from holding on to this reserve of helium. Fair enough. Yeah, so you would expect it would get sold off. However, at that time, the new technologies were being developed and the useful properties of helium in that process were recognized. And so they decided to retain the helium reserve. By 1990s, however, it was decided that the reserve, which was held in a series of unused underground mines stretching between northern Texas into Kansas, was no longer required. And so a bill was passed by the U.S. House to gradually sell off the holdings of the reserve. However, humans are terrible and we can't handle it when we get new stuff. Uh, and because the price was so low in terms of like the supply was always guaranteed because the government was releasing X number of cubic meters per year, the quality was good because it was coming from the government. So there was a sense of like, oh, well, we're getting all this helium. So like, 
whatever. Like, sure, Bob in the lab, if he wants to talk like this for the rest of the week, we'll let him. Like, we were just wasting it so much. The U.S. government recognized the fact that we couldn't handle being given this awesome power. And in response... The awesome power of of helium, helium, people. In response, in 2013, they passed the, I love this, Helium Stewardship Act, which revived the strategic helium reserve and limited the amount that would be released into the market. (laughs) Wow, I shake my head a lot this week. (laughs) So, there's one other type of strategic reserve to talk about, and that's the reserves which are intended for the long-term survival of our planet. For example, we have the uh, Savalbard Global Seed Trust. So it started in 1984, and the purpose of this reserve is to protect the Earth's flora in case of catastrophic global disaster, like climate change, for example. Savalbard is a tiny Arctic archipelago and is technically a territorial possession of Norway. There is a population density of just 0.1 person per square miles. So you need 10 square miles per one person. So that's some good landmass. Yeah, that's, yeah. All told, only 2,600 people live up there. It's just inside the Arctic Circle at the very northern tip of the Scandinavian Peninsula, so there's not a big rush for land up there. Uh, its location was chosen because of its remoteness and its cold temperature, and it's expected that even if the world's polar ice caps melt, the location will remain dry it's so far north and so highly elevated that we'd be okay as a bonus it's nowhere near any tectonic plate junction so it's pretty much earthquake proof as well so if you ever needed a place to store the seeds to restart humanity this is the place that you put it the seed trust itself is built 400 feet inside a sandstone mountain which is great for drainage should the worst happen and it flood Uh, It's built far enough into the permafrost, however, that even if its power should fail, the seed and plant material it contained would still remain frozen, because it's naturally cold enough. And uh, in 2005, so the original trust started in 1984, but in 2005, the Norwegian team that started the project, which was known as the Nordic Gene Bank, merged with the Southern African Development Community, which was doing the same kind of work, and then the Savalbard Global Seed Trust was formed. Cool. So there's two groups that came together. Because they're like, hey, we're both doing the same thing, but you probably have a better location, so let's yes. give us all your stuff. Exactly. We have no plants up here, but you have lots of plants in Africa, so let's... Yeah. It's like peanut and chocolate butter. Like yeah. peanut butter and... Peanut and chocolate butter? <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate. And I went, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly what you meant. Our crazy is now infectious, and we... Yeah. yeah. Uh, So the collection currently numbers 865,000 seed samples, but has the capacity to hold 4.5 million. So that's where I want to be if the world ends and every like disaster day movie happens. That's where I want to (laughs) be. That or the middle of Saskatchewan. Yeah, but then you're in Saskatchewan. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But there's no like earthquakes. The worst you get is maybe a tornado, but it's pretty like... And locusts. If the 1920s proved anything, it was that locusts are bad scenes. True. I'm going Norway. I have decided, like, Norway's the top of, like, every chart for, like, happiest people, longest vacations, like, all of that. Like, I want to move up you can there. Have, like, four years of maternity leave yeah. and parental leave. I don't need it, but, like, yeah. So all I'm saying is the only barrier between that me moving there is the language. And if I could ever overcome Actually, that barrier. Actually, they all speak English. 
English is taught heavily in all the Scandinavian well, countries. Just let me pack up my stuff and you have to find a job there, darling. Shh, don't ruin this for me. I'm gonna be. When you become a doctor in seven years. In seven years, yes. Uh, so similarly to the seed group, a group of scientists are trying to preserve the information contained in the world's glaciers. I don't know if you've uh, heard, but uh, we're losing the glaciers, Andy. I know. <laughs> Climate change is making them disappear quickly and efficiently. The thing with glaciers, though, is that they're like tree rings, and each layer tells us a story about the Earth's history. So what information are we losing each year about our planet that we don't know about? Because we don't know what we don't know. The problem is, is we also don't know what we're looking for yet. So it's just, as we lose it, it's gone. And there's it's never any chance. Yeah, there's never any chance of getting that potential information back. To, save off, to stave off this loss, a group of researchers founded the Protecting Ice Memory Project. It's an international effort that started in 2016, and glaciologists and engineers from France, Italy, Russia, and the U.S. set out to collect as many samples from glaciers around the world as they could. And I'm a little sad that I didn't catch glaciologists for my ology story a couple weeks ago. Yes. That's another one like the seriologist where they tell them about their day at work and then ask to borrow money, I'm sure. But... So this international team, they're trying to collect as many samples as they can. Each sample, though, is 426 feet long, and it's bored into a glacier as a cylinder. So it's yep. one kind of like giant cylinder of ice. From the samples, scientists are able to observe gaseous concentrations, pollution, uh, long-term temperature changes, among other things. And every time they pull a sample, they catalog what they find. And then the thought is that they will ship the samples to a snow cave in Antarctica for preservation. The project, however, isn't going well. Yeah. In 2016, three ice cores were collected from France, but it wasn't expected that the first one would be available for analysis until sometime this year. And the other two wouldn't be analyzed until sometime next year. And this article that I pulled this from was written in 2016. So... Like, they dated 2019, yeah. 2020, and when they wrote in 2016, they hadn't even been transported to Antarctica yet. So they're sitting in labs in France, which is fine. Like As long as they stay power. Yeah, until, like, humanity falls apart, and then we lose it. Uh, so this is literally a ticking clock, uh, The and once the opportunity is gone, we'll never have it again, and we'll never know what we lost. So they're trying to create a global reserve of ice. <laughs> in Antarctica, but like whether or not it will happen, it's hard to tell right now. Finally, we once again have to talk about Jurassic Park. Not really, but it's something called the Frozen Ark Project. Similar to the seed vaults, the purpose of this project is to preserve the DNA of animals facing possible extinction. And as you may remember, a couple weeks ago, the UN put out that really terrifying report that said one million species face extinction in the next decade, uh, the next kind of like massive extinction event uh, brought on by humans. So in 2004, the British National History Museum, the Zoological Society of London, and Nottingham University established what they termed a frozen zoo. So they've collected DNA and living tissue samples so that even if we do lose a species, scientists will still be able to study them to a certain extent. And no joke, while they, this is a quote from the article I found, while they generally discount a Jurassic Park scenario, they say it might be possible in a few instances. So I would like to know which instances, because if it's the domestic house cat, I'm okay with it. 
if it's Siegfried's a cassuera or Siegfried's tiger, I have problems. <laughs> and I would like to talk to the manager, please. <laughs> well, they found that um, frozen uh, Woolly Mammoth? horse. No, mm. the little horse oh. up in Mongolia or Siberia or somewhere. And it actually was perfectly preserved, preserved yeah. to the point where they could even extract urine out of the, like... Urethra or yeah, bladder? Yeah, the, the, the carcass, like this mummified, frozen, wee little horse. <laughs> so they were talking about, like, they could clone this animal from the amount of DNA they found. This thing has been frozen in the tundra for... Right. Hundreds of years. There is a team in Russia pulled a woolly mammoth out of a similar situation and then had steaks for dinner. They fucking eat the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. The look on your face. Same look I had on my face when I heard the story. Yeah. It was frozen meat. It didn't have freezer burn on it. <laughs> it was fine. And he just became vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> So back to I have no words. <laughs> Russia's wild, man. Uh, back to the Frozen Ark project. Was it Putin? <laughs> I bet you he was probably picking his teeth with a woolly mammoth <laughs> the horn. <laughs> to date, uh, the Frozen Ark project has collected about 700 samples, and research institutes in the UK, the US, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, Norway, and Ireland are all participating. So everyone recognizes the importance of this, and they're all on board. DNA donations come in from museums, university laboratories, and sometimes the animals themselves are sent in via the zoos. I guess if they've got one of the last of something and it's about to die, or it has just died, they'll ship it off to the frozen ark and call it a day. Well, that's kind of good. Well, um, that's Animal Death Watch with uh, Rabbit Holes Podcast. <laughs> so that was my last uh, little story. So we can all struck, uh, chuckle about the strategic reserves that we hear about because some of them are really silly, but in the case of the last three, we desperately need them to work. We desperately need them to happen if no, for no other reason than to protect the planet from ourselves. There's also reserves of medications yep. that they should probably do a better job of. CDC holds back a massive reserve for, of vaccinations for communicable diseases yes. for obvious reasons. What else? Uh, China has a pork reserve that they hold on to, as well as a uranium reserve, which worries me, but well, it's another story. But yeah, we all have these weird little reserves. It's all about market demands, really, yeah. and saving the planet. That's my story for the week. Yay! Yay! So that was my story, and that was our show. So uh, if you want to connect with us, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out our merch tab to get the link to our Redbubble store so you can pick up some of our lovely merch. Or head over to the support tab to see our Patreon um, link to the Patreon page so you can come on board as a patron of the show. Also on the website, all the show notes, the links to all of the resources we use to build our stories are there. The blog is there. The super secret part, the not so super secret part of our website is there for our patrons. And uh, you can also get links to our webmail and social media, which Andy's about to tell you about. So our email, uh, did you do that? No, you just I said did it. not. Sorry. Uh, so you can reach us via email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Tell us if you like what we're doing. Um, send us in some ideas. Uh, just send us an email so it's not just Hootsuite and a few other 
like spam email <laughs> updates we get. Uh, we can also be reached on the social medias. We can be reached at Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. We're usually fairly active. Depends on how busy my life is. Yeah. Um, and if you like what we're doing, you can rate, review, give us as a recommendation, spread the word, because the bird is the word. <laughs> and really, birds are the word this week, because we've talked cassowaries and uh, DNA reserves of animals. Mm-hmm. So yeah, please let other people know that you like what we're doing and they should listen to you, because I think that's half of what I talk to people about is, have you listened to this podcast? <laughs> right now, I am listening to Teacher's, Teacher's Pet, Pet, as well as I just, uh, I'm trying out a couple of other um, podcasts, Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos, and a few others that I can't remember. Cool. Like we talked about at the top of the show, the Ottawa Podcasting Festival is coming up at the end of August of 2019. So head to our website to get links to that as well. And if you're in the Ottawa area, please do come out and support us and all the other shows that will be performing. Lineup information coming soon. So there's nothing else to do tonight except to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.